Thank you, John, Ariana, for our music today. How back in 1 Samuel 2, where Gordon read a long passage to us to get the whole context of what is happening here. Let me remind you, this being Father's Day, that uh, dads, we have a gift for you just for being a father. And uh, they're back on the counter. And uh, first of all, if you don't own a tie, we, we have a tie for you. And if uh, you don't get anything to eat for lunch, we have a candy bar for you. So we're meeting every need that you have. As a matter of fact, I, I, I noticed this uh, the other day as I was looking at Father's Day announcements. You know, Father's Day, we, we think of like this. As a matter of fact, one online dictionary says it like this. It's a celebration honoring fathers and celebrating fatherhood, paternal bonds, and the influence of fathers in society. But I looked at the word and I noticed it says Father's apostrophe S. Always, you know, it's Father's Day, R apostrophe S. It's not Father's R-S. But that's how we treat it. And I thought to myself, now the, the one apostrophe S, the way it's spelled, means it's my day, right? It's Father's Day. It's not a day about fathers, like Groundhog Day, although a lot of us, you know, about the same. But I mean... <laughs> It's, it's Father's Day. So first of all, I want to remind you there's three kinds of candy bars, and Dad, it's your day. You take the one you want, not the one your wife tells you to take. You know, <laughs> Some have peanuts in them. Some don't. It's your day. Father Apostrophe S, Father's Day. It's your day. And where you want to go eat, what you want to do today, don't want to take a nap today, it's Father's Day. Not Father's, but your day. I, I, I don't know. It just <laughs> struck me as funny that... Uh, you know, it's spelled one day, but we do it a different day. So remember, it's your day today. Hope that you'll take advantage of it. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 2. In our study of Samuel, uh, on Mother's Day, we came to a passage that where Hannah uh, vowed her vow to God, and God rewarded that vow with a child. Uh, and so that paralleled Mother's Day nicely. And so we come today to this passage uh, that has to do with Eli and Elkanah, two fathers. And so I titled this, Two Fathers and Sons. It seems as though the writer of this book, whether it's Samuel or someone else, uh, purposed to bring out these contrasts that are here in these early chapters. There's a contrast here between fathers. There's Elkanah on the one hand and Eli on the other. There's a contrast between the sons, obviously Hophni and Phinehas on the one hand and Samuel on the other, just as there was between the, the mothers, that is uh, Hannah and Penina. There are contrasts all through these uh, verses. There's a contrast between faithful Israelites and godless Israelites. There's a lot of that going on in the nation at this time. And there's a contrast between God's blessing and God's judgment. And when the, those things come upon a person or upon a family or upon a nation. So there is this contrast going on. And I think it uh, allows us to see some good things in this passage, as you see from my, my outline uh, in the bulletin, if, if you'd like to follow it. Let me say that my, my perspective here in talking about uh, Eli and Elkanah and contrasting them, and even between the sons, uh, the evil sons, sons of Belial and, and Samuel, I'm not 
judging, to use a modern day word, uh, what I don't know about them. I'm just going to give the facts about them and what the Bible says about them. In other words, I'm not putting fathers here or sons here or anyone here into certain categories, into two categories or four categories necessarily. Sometimes uh, this is the way people turn out, regardless of what you do. And you have to do what's right before the Lord. Now, the percentage is much greater of your children turning out right if you're a godly father or a godly mother. Of course, that's true. As a matter of fact, on our verse on the table in the back where those uh, candy bars are, Dad, where you get to make your choice, there's a verse that says, the just man walketh in his integrity, his children are blessed after him. And so when we walk in our integrity, of course, our children are blessed by that. It gives them a great advantage. The percentages of them turning out the way they should is much better. But let me say also that great men throughout history have lost their sons to the world. I mean, men of God, evangelists, great pastors, writers, theologians have lost their children. And and many ungodly men have somehow produced godly sons that came out of that, that family. It's an amazing kind of thing. And godly children can become ungodly adults, and that happens often. And many times, ungodly children somehow become godly adults. And so we can't always just say, this will happen, and there's no doubt about it. And why is that? I think because conviction and repentance is real. No matter how old you are or who you are, a conviction about godly principles and godly life and re true repentance before God, God understands and God hears and God honors. And he will do that for anyone, anywhere. Circumstances are different often for some people uh, than others. I imagine that many of those great men of God, evangelists and all, who lost their kids probably because of circumstances they were in, they were hardly ever home. It's a tough thing. Uh, sometimes it happens that way. Sometimes other people come into a child's life and bring a kind of an example that they need where maybe a mother or a father doesn't provide that uh, example and turns that child around. That can happen, and it often does. And sometimes just tragedy that comes into a life changes a life and changes the way a person thinks. I want you to, um, to hold your place here in Samuel and do something with me. I want you to turn clear over to your right to Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, and chapter 18, prophet Ezekiel 18, if you go to Daniel, you went, you've gone a little too far. And uh, here is a chapter that's interesting in, this, in these regards. Uh, in, in verse 2, the Lord is saying, What mean ye that you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Saying, here's the old proverb. Ezekiel 18.2, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. <laughs> In other words, when you eat something that makes you pucker, <laughs> your children pucker instead of you. <laughs> That's kind of like whatever the father does is going to affect the child, right? But he says, 
As I live, saith the Lord, you shall not have occasion anymore to use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. In other words, I'm going to hold every person responsible for his or her life. And you're responsible for God because you're a soul. You're an eternal soul made in the image and likeness of God. You are responsible to God. And even though you may have, a God, may have godly parents who directed you in the right way, and they will be blessed for it and praise the Lord, you still have a choice to make before God, and God will hold you responsible. As a matter of fact, then the writer Ezekiel goes on, God speaking through him, of course. In verse 5, here's the first generation. If a man be just... And do that which is lawful and right. Then he takes a number of verses to describe this man all the way down to verse 9. And he walketh in my statutes and keep my judgments to deal truly. He is just. He shall surely live, saith the Lord. You do what's right, I will bless you. And then look in verse 10. Here's generation number 2. If he beget a son that is a robber, a shedder of blood, and that doeth the like to any one of these things. And he describes that man down through to verse 13. He giveth forth upon usury, hath taken increase. Shall he then live? He shall not live. He, sh he hath done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. Well, then there's a third generation, <laughs> verse 14. Now, lo, if he beget a son that seeth all his father's sins which he hath done, and considereth and doeth them, and doeth not such like. And then he describes this man all the way down to verse 17. That taken off his hand from the poor, he hath not received usury nor increase, has executed my judgments, hath walked in my statutes. He shall not die, for the iniquity of his fathers he shall surely live. And then the conclusion is in verse 20. The soul that sinneth, uh, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. If the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. And verse 23, he says, Have I pleasure in all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? Now, I, I turn to those verses and say them, so that we understand and get a, a proper perspective from Eli and Elkanah, Hophni and Phinehas, and Samuel. I'm not, I don't want to downplay, of course, the influence of godly fathers upon their sons. But neither do I want to discourage a godly father whose son may be wandering away from God and vice versa. Or think that, well, since I didn't have a godly father, I don't have to live for the Lord. He didn't give me a good example. I don't have to do it. No. God holds you accountable for you. And that's one thing that we're learning here in this passage. I hope that we will see. As a matter of fact, in your Old Testament reading, if you're reading with us through our, uh, our schedule, we, in 2 Kings, we're, we're coming through the, the kings of, of uh, Judah and the kings of Israel. And Israel had no good kings, but the, the kingdom of Judah had good and bad kings. And we have Jotham a descendant of Uzziah, who is a good son and does what is right. His son is Ahaz, one of the wicked kings of Judah, who, who brings in idols from uh, Damascus. And you know who his son is? Hezekiah, 
a good king, one of the best kings, who does great things and cleanses the nation and brings godliness back to the nation. And you know who his son is? His son is Manasseh, one of the worst kings in Judah. Go figure. But God says, I'm going to hold everyone responsible for himself and what he does before God. So I want us to notice a few things here. Mostly it's a, it's a study of these four characters. First of all, I want to talk about Eli a little bit. And I put on here as a title, I think Eli's a good man. We found out that Eli is an old man by this time. He'll die in his 90s, uh, but he's old, he's heavy, kind of immobile. Uh, his, these are sons of his older age. Perhaps we don't know what happened to his wife, so she's gone by now. And, and yet, I think he's, he's a good man, basically. He's a, he's a priest. He's a man of God. He's trying to do right, but he's losing his sons. I think, first of all, he's a good man because he was a priest. And, and in chapter 1, verse 3, we have him introduced as the priest. And then uh, in verse 30 of the chapter that we're in, God said, I, indeed, I said indeed that thy house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever. God had said that to Eli. Now, it'll be taken from him because of certain failures in his life and his children's lives. But initially, he was a good man. God answered his prayer twice. When uh, he blessed Hannah and heard her vow, he said, Then the Lord give you what you've asked. And God honored Eli's blessing and gave her that child. And then we read in verse 20 uh, of this chapter, he says again, The Lord give the seed of this woman, he says to Elkanah, and she has more children than Samuel. So God hears this man's prayer, and I think in the end, he has a heart for God. In chapter 4 and verse 18, when he's sitting there and they bring the report that the ark of the Lord has been stolen by the Philistines and his two sons have been killed, verse 18 says, it came to pass when he made mention of the ark of God that he fell from off the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck break, and he died for he was an old man and heavy, and he had judged Israel 40 years. But the thought that the glory had departed from Israel, when the, and they will write Ichabod over the door, uh, it broke his heart. So I think he, that he was a good man. I think we should take it that way. Secondly, about Eli, he loved Samuel. He loved this little boy. And chapter 3, and we're going to go through in our study through chapter 3, we'll see his love for Samuel and Samuel's love for him. And I think that's a good thing. And so even though his sons are disappointing him and bringing him grief, he loves this little boy who's serving God. He sees God in him. He sees God's work, and he loves that. And he puts himself into Samuel. I think that's a sign of a good man. I remember when I was a young pastor was out in, in uh, Colorado and first became a pastor of a church there in Fort Collins. And I love that ministry and the people there, uh, Colorado, who doesn't love Colorado? And I uh, had a man come and join the church who was a World War II veteran. Uh, and uh, he was a veteran of D-Day, had landed at either Omaha or Utah Beach, I forget. Short fella and older now uh, at the time. And... Uh, he fell in love with me, and I fell in love with him. 
he was a handyman, just did things around the church, and he would tell those stories of D-Day. Uh, reminds me of Milburn being, uh, you know, leading patrols in Korea. This man was a, was a point man for his battalion as they came off those ships, and something like 80% of the men that he was leading died, but he was the point man and lived through it. It was quite a story, he told. He had a son who also started coming to the church, and he and I kind of hit it off at first, but then uh, we ran into some difficulties, some uh, points of view, and uh, in the end, this son of his started frequenting bars, got in a fight with a guy in a bar and killed him, and he's in prison to this day. And I thought to myself, you can't, how do I know what God's going to do in a person's life? And yet I was blessed as a young preacher by a man who loved me and served and helped me, and yet his very son disappointed me and, uh, and brought me a bad example, though by God's grace I, uh, I, was, I was kept from it. So I think Eli loved Samuel, and it was a blessing to him and to Samuel. Number three, Eli was too indulgent, obviously. And so you find in verses 22 to 25, <clears throat> as Gordon read to, them, uh, read to us a minute ago, here is Eli scolding his sons for what they're doing and the sins that they are doing in front of everybody, obvious to everybody. And yet, it's law without penalty. You know, someone said, I think of it uh, many times of our government, law without penalty is merely good advice, you know. Uh, if all you're saying is you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, and you never have any penalty for it, well, then you're not going to stop anybody. And that's what, kind of what's going on in our country right now. But this was what was going on in Israel with Eli and his sons. Boys, you shouldn't do that. Boys, you need to stop it. Boys, don't you know you're hurting everything by doing it? But there was never a penalty for it. There's never discipline to it. A lesson that fathers ought to learn early with their children uh, don't overpromise, but don't underpromise, and make sure that the penalty is equal to uh, the the command uh, if it's not obeyed. There was a threat and no punishment, uh, and there needed to be. So he was indulgent and too indulgent, and that's a lesson to all fathers. And then lastly, Eli was rebuked by God. In verse 27, a man of God comes to him. We're not told who it is. There came a man of God unto Eli and said to him, Thus saith the Lord, Did I plainly appear unto the house of thy father when they were in Egypt and father's house? Did I choose him out? And he goes through the history and rebukes him. And he needed to be rebuked. And then in verse 31 also, Behold, the days come that I will cut off thine arm and the arm of thy father's house, that there shall not be an old man in thy house. So he suffered the penalty for what he did. I guess the, the bottom line here on our first point would be good men aren't always godly men. And good fathers aren't always godly fathers. There are a lot of good people, a lot of good uh, parents, a lot of just good neighbors, you know, good leaders of our country, good this, good that. That doesn't mean necessarily godly that God hears and God honors and God keeps. And that maybe is a good lesson to learn from Eli. Now, secondly, he had, of course, two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And, and 
they're called here sons of Belial, although uh, other translations can use the word worthless because that's kind of what that word means. They're just worthless kids. And so here's Hophni and Phinehas. And they were that way. Uh, and you, that's why I wanted Gordon to read all the way through to, through verse 26 so you get the feeling of what these two sons. So here's this older man, a good old man, a loving old man, a man that loves to see a boy like Samuel serve the Lord and all of this. And yet here are his sons like this, <clears throat> and it's repeated throughout the judges and the kings of Israel and Judah. It's kind of a sad story. Let me give you four characteristics. They're negative characteristics <clears throat> of what I think, uh, why these boys are the way they are and what, what happened here. Number one, <clears throat> they were children of privilege, and that's not always good. We find from chapter 1 and verse 3 that they were priests also. Now, a priest in Israel, you, you can't get any more privileged than that. You can't get any higher than that. I mean, you, you are at the temple. You are dressed in the beautiful dress. You, people bring things to you. People honor you. People stand aside for you. They were children of privilege, and that's not always a good thing, kind of uppity, as we might say. Maybe they never learned what hard work was. Maybe they never learned to take responsibility. Maybe they were given everything that they had. They never really had to work for it. They never knew the hard times. And maybe you say, well, that's not their fault. It's just what they were born into because the father uh, was in this position. That's where the son will be also, the same with the kings. And I guess that's true. But we ought to take notice when uh, our kids have so much and don't have to work very hard for it, never have known any difficulty, never have known any hard times. Uh, that's tough. As uh, Tim was reminding us, maybe we need the lights out once in a while, so it forces us to go out and do something, you know, other than what we're doing. And so they were children of privilege. I think, uh, I think that's number one. Matter of fact, I heard, I heard a newscaster say the other day, uh, have you ever noticed that Kim, uh, Kim Jong-il is the only fat man in North Korea? <laughs> in other words, the whole country looks like it's starving to death, but him, you know, he's, he's nice and jolly and fat and having a good time. A child of privilege in a country like that, right? Secondly, they were children of a corrupt culture. Children of a corrupt culture, hard to deal with. What did the last verse of the book of Judges, just before Ruth, what did it say? Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There's no law. There's, there's no correction. There's no holiness. There's no judgment from God. Everybody's doing whatever they want to do. And look at chapter, uh, chapter 3 of our text here in verse 1, the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in, their, in those days. There was no open vision. And what that means is there was no work of God among them. Nothing was happening in this culture where they could say, that's of God, that's what we should do. Uh, someone pointed to a verse in Psalm 74, 9, where the psalmist says, we see not our signs, meaning there are signs that come from God. There is no more any prophet. There's no speaker from God. Neither is there among us any that knoweth how long. In other words, there's no knowledge that comes from God 
Or, of course, Proverbs says, where there is no vision, the people perish. And that doesn't mean everybody's individual idea. What that means is where there's not a prophet to give you the vision from God in a prophetic way, the people are going to perish. I wonder, folks, if in our country today there's no vision from God. There's no honoring God. There's no honoring the God of our fathers, reading the word of God. As a matter of fact, we outlaw him, and we outlaw it all. And where that happens, the people perish. These two boys were children of their uh, culture. The old uh, English writer Dean said, reverence had died out. The natural tendency to imitate and worship and the belief of surrounding nations was strengthened. The power of defending themselves against enemies was impaired. Such consequences resulted from the example of wickedness set in high places. They're going to do whatever the nations around them do. And we see that constantly uh, in, in the books. As a matter of fact, the nations around them were involved in fertility cults. And that's why they had temple prostitutes and things like that. Maybe what these two boys were practicing with the women who served in the temple. Uh, and these fertility cults somehow had a strange belief that that was connected to the fertility of their crops. C.S. Lewis used to call them the corn gods, that uh, you worship the corn gods. And in these ways, in these corrupt ways, will make your crops grow. Baal Ashtoreth worship, full of this kind of thing. And here are the priests of God beginning to practice this kind of idolatry around the temple of God. It was a strange and terrible thing. Thirdly, they were unsaved. Unsaved children, unsaved priests, unsaved ministers of God. That's what verse 12 told us. Not only are they called sons of Belial, it says they knew not the Lord. You'd think they would. They're supposed to lead others. <laughs> they're supposed to rule over others. And they're not even just themselves. They didn't even know the Lord. Good grief, I say, to these kinds of things. And yet, history is full of these kinds of examples, is it not? I mean, uh, you know, our forefathers had to break away from, uh, from the churches where, where they had priests that didn't even know the Lord. The, the reformers themselves, from Luther and Calvin and the rest, they had been priests before they got saved. And it still happens today. Let me describe to you what's happening in these verses when you, when you read from verse 13 uh, on down about the, the sacrificing and things like that. Let me just describe it to you. When, uh, this is described in Leviticus 7 for the peace offerings. And when the peace offerings of the animals were brought, the, the animals were butchered, cut up. Part of that was for the Lord and part of it was for the offerer and for the priest. And so they were divided up among the people. Now, they took the breast and the right shoulder. The breast and the shoulder, it's called. And they were to take the breast and do a wave offering before the Lord. They would actually hold it up and wave it before God as this is your portion. This is the Lord's portion. They would take then the shoulder and they would do a heave offering, which is back and forth, and heave it forward to the Lord. This is the Lord's offering. Now, when they did this offering and they butchered this animal, 
two things that belonged only to God and they were to have no part in was fat and blood. Obviously, blood had to be poured out on the altar to the Lord, but uh, Jews were never to eat blood in any kind of meat, right? Well, in the sacrifices, they were not to touch the fat either. Fat uh, was the Lord's. Now, they could eat fat at other times, but not with the sacrificial animals. So the best portions of the meat. So in other words, uh, uh, you know, if you like uh, good, juicy uh, steaks, you know, with a lot of fat in them, sorry, those belong to the Lord. Uh, you get the parts without the fat. The fat belongs to the Lord, probably because it kindled fire very well. It produced very juicy smoke that the Lord liked and all of that. That belonged to the Lord. But then they took what was left over, and part of it went to the offerer, the people who brought the sacrifice, and then the priest got a portion of that also. They divided it uh, evenly. So notice what is happening. First of all, robbery is happening. Because what happens in verses 13 and 14, when it says they took the, the hook from that they used to pull the meat across the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, fire with, and they would go over to where people are eating their portion of their sacrifice and take the hook and put it in their pot and pull out whatever they wanted. And if the people said, hey, wait a minute, you got your portion, this is ours, the priest would say, too bad, I'm taking the, this is what I want. They were robbing the people's right to their part of the sacrifice. And so, uh, you know, in verse 14, they struck it into the pan or kettle or collar or pot, and all that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. It was theirs. They didn't care. So there was robbery going on. Secondly, there was profanity going on because then these same priests not only robbed the people of their portion of the sacrifice, they wanted God's portion with the fat in it. And they didn't want it boiled. They wanted nice charcoal steak just for themselves. And so verse 15 begins by saying, Also, before they burnt the fat, which they're supposed to do and only God gets, the priest's servants came and said to the man that sacrificed, Give flesh for roast for the priest. He will not have sodden flesh of thee, but raw. I mean, I want it roasted. And if any man said unto him, but let them not fail to burn the fat presently. Burn, give the fat to God. Then take as much as your soul desireth. After you give what is God's, then he would answer, no, nay, but thou shalt give it me now, and if not, I will take it by force. And so they're profaning what belongs even to God, not only robbing the people, but profaning God and taking what is God's. And then thirdly, there is offense taken in verse 17. Wherefore, the sin of the young men is very great for the Lord, for the men abhorred the offering of the Lord. And people were offended and people were, were discouraged with their worship. And there wasn't true worship before God because of all of these things. It was a terrible thing going on. And here Eli is seeing this and is told this by other people that this is what is happening. And yet he can't do anything about it with these unsaved kids of his. Where there's no regeneration and there's no spirit of God, you have very little communication to pull and say, do what is right before God when someone isn't even born again of God. And then fourthly about Hophni and Phinehas real quickly. 
I think they hated and mocked Samuel. And no doubt, I, I believe this, because verse 26 says the child Samuel grew and was, and was in favor both of the Lord and also with men and by their own father. They hated that. They hated that he was a goody two-shoes. They hated that he was the fair-haired boy. They hated that he was the one doing right, and he got this praise, and they didn't. You know that they felt that way towards Samuel, a wrong way to feel, but they did. So Hophni and Phinehas has become the contrast, of course, to Samuel. Uh, Eli is a contrast to Elkanah, uh, and we should learn our lessons from it. Thirdly, Elkanah himself. And here... I, I write down Elkanah is a godly man, not only a good man, he's a godly man for these reasons. Number one, he was faithful to God's house and to God's service. Flip back with me to chapter 1, verse 3. This man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. This man did. He did it faithfully. Look at verse 7. As he did so year by year, he went up to the house of the Lord. Verse 21, I'm still in chapter 1. And the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer unto the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. You know, he taught Samuel, even as a little babe and as a little boy, and later taught his other children, no doubt even the children of, of Penina, that you're to go to the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord is an important place, and, and we're to go there. And so he, he was faithful to God's house. That was good. Secondly, he was blessed of God for his faithfulness. And look at chapter, uh, uh, chapter 2 and verse uh, 20. Where, uh, where he says, uh, Eli blessed Elkanah and his wife and said, The Lord give thee seed of this woman for the loan which is lent to the Lord. And they went unto their home. And, of course, verse 21 says that Hannah then had uh, at least five more children, maybe more beyond that. So he blessed, uh, Elkanah was blessed for his faithfulness. Let me ask you this. Is God on your side? Does God bless you for your faithfulness or are you letting God bless you for faithfulness or are you preventing God's blessing by not being this kind of man that Elkanah was even in the face of a corrupt culture in the face of bad examples and and all that was going on he had every excuse not to go he had every excuse to be unfaithful he had every excuse to be like the people around him but God is blessing him for his faithfulness is God blessing you for your faithfulness and then thirdly he led this family with principle. And we go back to chapter 1, verse 23. You remember this verse when Elkanah had Samuel, the little baby, at home, and she said that I'll not go with you until he's weaned, and then I'll bring him to the temple and leave him there. So verse 23 says, Elkanah, her husband, said unto her, Do what seemeth thee good, tarry until you have weaned him, only the Lord establish his word. Do what you have to do, but we will not transgress what we have vowed to God. Do what you can, but when it comes to what we must give to God, we will give that to God. And folks, that principle blessed this family. 
That principle blessed Hannah, it blessed Samuel, and no doubt the other children uh, in that house. Remember when Joshua said, I don't know what others will do, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Regardless of what everyone else does, we will do that. I say to you, do this for those under your care. In other words, you have just so many years. I realize that once kids become adults and they have their own ways and they go their own ways, you, you don't have that same control over them. And they may walk in a way not pleasing to you. And uh, if they do, they do. But while they're in your house, I think this is why uh, a, even a, a minister if he cannot take care of his own house, how shall he take care of the house of God? means that while those children are at home and under your care and you have discipline over them, then they should, they should follow that. It's part of the requirement for, for ministers, but it ought to be an admonition to all of us. Do it while you have them under your care. Don't violate your principles before God and don't allow your children to violate those principles while they're under your care. And that will give you blessings in years to come. Now, one last stop, and that's with Samuel. The son of favor, I, I call him. And I put these down as actions. I think Samuel, uh, we see uh, by three actions. Number one, he obeyed. He was an obedient child. There's no doubt about that, that he obeyed. In verse 26, uh, you see uh, the result of that. But number one, he obeyed his parents, didn't he? He obeyed his parents by being left there. I don't doubt that that little three-year-old, maybe four-year-old boy, being left by his parents at, with strange people at, at the temple, that his lip quivered a little bit, and there were a few tears running down his cheeks. I don't doubt that. He's a three-year-old. What's he going to do? But, you, but every time we see Samuel, he is doing what his parents vowed to God that, he, that they would do. He's obeying his parents. Secondly, he, he's obeying Eli. And this old man that nobody has too much respect for, whose kids don't even respect him, this little boy loves this old man and is serving this old man and obeying the priest of God. Touch not the Lord's anointed, and this is the Lord's anointed, and he's learned this early. And thirdly, he obeyed the women that took care of him. Now, here's an interesting little side note. Those women are mentioned in verse 22 when they send with Hophni and Phinehas. But there's a reason why these women are there. And if you want to go back and read uh, uh, Exodus 38 later, you can read about the history of these women that were helpers in the temple or tabernacle as it was then. They did jobs that were theirs to do. So they were there to take care of things as Women do, uh, you know, that it's a good thing men aren't left to clean out the temple. Uh, but but uh, women do this well and other jobs that were given them. As a matter of fact, you remember when Jesus was brought to the temple, there was an old lady named Anna who had been there for years in the temple. What was she doing there? No doubt one of these women who served in the temple. So there's no doubt that it isn't just that old man Eli had to change Samuel's diapers, <laughs> but rather there were women there to take care and to do things, and he was very obedient to them. And he had respect of them, and they saw this. And so I say, number one, he obeyed. Um, the old 
uh, Jewish writer Philo said one time, looking on their laws as oracles inspired by God and instructed in them from early childhood, the Jews carry the image of the commandments in their very souls. They're instructed in this and their soul, it's in their DNA, you might say, and their heart burns with this. And he learned to do this. Secondly, about Samuel, he imitated. Not only did he obey, but he imitated. And so in verse 18, Samuel ministered before the Lord, being a child, girded with a little linen ephod. Here's, here's what the priest does. I'll do it. He's got a big ephod. I'll have a little one. <laughs> he's, got, he's got this big uh, dress and ornament. I'll have a little one. And he proudly wore that around. Can't you see him say, well, here, uh, Samuel, take this candle over there and set it down. Or take this loaf of bread, Samuel, and put it on the table there. And, and he proudly did it, you know, with his little ephod. Uh, one older writer described it, if you'll, if you'll indulge me. The ephod consisted of two pieces of white cloth or linen hangings from the neck in front and behind, joined together at the shoulders with straps and confined about the waist with a band. It was an ephod that he wore over his clothing. Beside this, Hannah, when she came uh, to the annual sacrifice, brought him a little coat or robe, a garment reaching down to the feet like that worn by the high priest under the ephod, though no doubt of less costly material, not so elaborately ornamented. So, so in every way, he was dressed just like the priest with little robe and little ephod. And there he went imitating around. You know, this, this is a great thing. And, and this is why it's good for little children to be in church. This is why it's good for them to be in Sunday school. It's, it's good for them to be in nursery because little children learn to imitate. How else do you learn what you've got to learn if you don't imitate? And so you imitate even before you understand. You just do it because you're supposed to do it. And then the understanding comes and you're already in that mode of doing it. Uh, you say, well, what can, a, what can a one-year-old learn in nursery? I tell you what they can learn. This is where they're supposed to go. And there's a time out of the week when you have to be away from mom for an hour. And there's a time where you just have to do this. And then all of a sudden they have to be in a class at three years old or, or whatever it is. And, and why should a little three-year-old do that? Because it's time to learn. This is what the adults are doing too. And mom and dad are here too. And this is my part of it. And their little lip may quiver when they're first left in that class, but they learn and they do it. And we imitate all of our lives. And even when we're here and we, we come together and we don't quite know what to do in a service, we do what everybody else is doing. Do what the older saints are doing. And we imitate the things of God until they become ours and we learn them. And uh, that's the way it should be. And so he imitated and then lastly he ministered to the Lord, no doubt. And here in our text, verse 11, we have the child did minister unto the Lord. Verse 18, Samuel ministered before the Lord. Verse 26, Samuel grew on and was in favor with the Lord and also with men. Chapter 3, verse 1, the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli when the word of God was precious. And 319, uh, the same thing, he grew and the Lord was with him and he did let none of his words fall to the ground. He ministered. Isn't it great to see young people come up and minister? Wasn't last Sunday night a, a blessing? These aren't three-year-olds, uh, though they act like it sometimes. They, they aren't. They're, they're three-year-olds. 
But they're young men who love the Lord, and they minister. And the young ladies who did also with us last week, and, and all of our little children, and, and they, they ought to do this. John said, John the elder, you know, said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. No greater joy than that. And here was uh, Samuel. And so uh, no doubt they looked back on those years and they remembered leaving that little child, how difficult it was in those days. And yet when they saw him ministering year by year when they went up, they said, this is worth it. This was worth it. And I hope every parent, every father can say that. Let me close with these words of admonition. Number one, be a godly father or mother. Be a godly parent. That is your number one responsibility. Be what God wants you to be, regardless of anything else. Secondly, be an obedient and godly child, son or daughter. Be godly and obedient, regardless of even the example, if it's, if it's a negative example. You be a godly child. That's what you should be. Don't be ungodly regardless of ungodly fathers or ungodly children. Just because they are not living with the Lord, you don't say, well, then I'm going to give up and I'm not going to live with the Lord. No, you do it. And remember this, your Father in heaven is perfect, and he said, be ye perfect, for I am perfect. And not only that, but God's Son is perfect. <laughs> and he said, do as I do. So you follow God who is perfect, and you follow God's Son, and imitate Him, and you will be blessed in your life. The principles of life are God's Word. I'm going to speak more about that tonight from the book of 3 John. No one can keep you from following God's principles. No one. You can do it. It's really up to you, regardless of examples, regardless of leadership, regardless of culture, of situation. You decide whether you're going to follow God or not. Do it, and do it with all your heart. Stand now with me, if you will, as we stand and think about these things, and we'll sing a song of invitation in just a moment. Let's pray together. Father, how we read these stories in your word, and we're struck by the contrasts in them. We're amazed at how godly people could do what they did in their difficult circumstances, and yet we thank you for it. We're amazed how good people can seem to fall away and not do your will. We're amazed at that, and yet we see it in ourselves, and we know it's possible. So, Father, as we pause now and, and, and think about these things, we need your Spirit to teach us, to remind us of things in our lives that need to be set right, to remind us of things that are not given to you wholly, that we might give them to you and be like you and imitate you. Help us, Father, to put those things on the altar today, to say, I confess these before you. Uh, Father, have your will and your way in us. Bless fathers, bless children, bless mothers. May we as a church be blessed because you have blessed us. So work in our hearts now, have your will in your way, and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. As we sing our song, our invitation is always open to pray here at this altar or meet me at the front if you have a need, and our invitation extends even after the service too. You do what God wants you to do as we sing. John, come and lead us. <laughs>